Heavenly Father, you are so good and so gracious to your people. Even this gathering this morning is by your grace. We're so thankful, Father, that we have this reassurance coming from the church at Philadelphia that even when we feel powerless, we know that you are powerful and that you, in fact, will hold us fast to the very end. It is our prayer this morning, Father, that in the midst of our struggles and our difficulties, and when we are persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ, that we would see, Father, that you have words of encouragement to us That there is no reason to turn to an idol. There is no reason to sacrifice our faith. And there is no reason to become discouraged or despondent. You truly are the faithful one. You will sustain us. You will strengthen us. You will protect us. And one day, Father, you will deliver us. And how glorious that deliverance will be. And so I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters and for myself that we would be rightly encouraged by this text. That we be emboldened by it, Father. And for any here today who are feeling powerless, I pray, Lord, that you would empower them with the strength of your spirit to be encouraged this day. Do that, Father, for the sake of this body. Do it for your glory, that we might be that brilliant representation, the brilliant ambassadors for Christ that you have called and equipped us to be. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, I am so thankful you're here, so this is one of those weird days where you get an extra hour's sleep, and technically that means that you should be very well rested and eager to hear, but I've noticed over the years the exact opposite. Something very strange happens. We get an extra hour and we're more tired, and usually we're even late on this day. Let that be the case. Let's, uh, let's fire up the, uh, the furnace of our hearts and minds and listen with all our might, okay? I mean, God gave you that extra hour, or someone did, I don't know who did. But you have it, so let's use it well for His glory. Um, we, are, we are the second to last of the seven letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. And these are all the, the letters, the seven letters that were written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And, and we get to this letter, and it's addressed to the church in Philadelphia. And it's very much like Smyrna. It's one of the two letters of the seven where there's no rebuke and there's no correction There is only encouragement and there's only praise. Jesus praises the church in Philadelphia for for not only keeping his word, but for not denying his name before ungodly men. And then he encourages them to, to stay the course. He says, remain faithful, even though things are really hard, even though you're being persecuted. Stay the course and remain faithful. Even when you what? Even when you feel powerless. He said, he's reminding them, you are powerful in me because I am powerful. Now that feeling of, of powerlessness or um, having very little control to change circumstances in our lives, um, when those circumstances are hard, when we experience unmet expectations or we're going through sickness uh, or death or, or our lot in life seems to be daily suffering um, and even the most mature believers get overwhelmed, and that may be you this morning, The Western narrative has the same answer, and it's not the answer that Christ gives us today. When you're struggling and feeling powerless, the Western narrative is this. It says, find that inner strength. Find that personal fortitude to overcome it on your own. You can do it. 
In fact, it's been the meta-narrative now for generations going back to my great-grandparents. You say, well, how do we know that? If you look at some of the major movies over the past several decades, they have that same predominant Western theme. I mean, you go back to when I was a kid, Rocky was the big was the big movie then, came out with several others after. The Dark Knight, The Shawshank Redemption, Saving Private Ryan, Gladiator, The Matrix, today it would be Top Gun Maverick. Same theme in each, that you have these stories where individuals in seemingly powerless situations are able to overcome their circumstances, they're able to transcend their situations by exerting some sort of inner strength and fortitude. And at the end, they make it, and they're the heroes, and everybody says, I want to be like Maverick. But what are you to do, my beloved, when you have done that? When you've exercised all the personal fortitude of Rocky and Batman and Maverick combined, and yet you still find yourself in circumstances unchanged, or they're getting worse? Where are you to turn when you truly feel powerless because in your situation you are, in fact, powerless? When your circumstances in life are, in fact, bigger than you? Well, our Christians, these brothers and sisters in Philadelphia, they were certainly feeling that under the weight of the imperial cult. They were being forced to worship the emperor and other pagan gods or suffer the wrath of Rome. No small threat. Thankfully, our Lord does not tell them, be like Rocky or or be like Maverick. He doesn't tell them to find some inner power or some personal fortitude to prevail. No, he calls them as he will call us today if we have ears to hear. He says, come to me. Christ calls us to himself, the Son of God, seated upon the throne for all the strength we need to persevere now and forever. It is a most encouraging letter. So if you struggled last week with the teaching on Sardis, because that's one of the hardest letters, then I have great news for you. This is like Christmas for the Christian. This is God just pouring out blessing upon blessing for all those who do what? For all those who remain faithful. For all those who remain faithful. So if we have ears to hear, and I pray we do, we will see how Jesus strengthens his people by reassuring them of three glorious biblical truths that believers in every age and under any circumstance, are to enjoy. And that is one, being received by God, number two, being kept by God, and number three, being loved by God. If you are a believer this morning in Jesus Christ, if you have faith in the risen Savior, then you have been received by God, you are kept by God, and you are loved by God to a degree that we can't even approach that with words. The theme of the sermon is this. The faithful are never powerless in Christ. The faithful, those who keep the faith, are never powerless in Christ. All right, number one, received by God. Look at verse seven. Verse seven, Jesus is now speaking to the apostle John. John is writing fastidiously. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. So Philadelphia is located about 28 miles southeast of Sardis, which we looked at last week. And it, the city actually sat at the base of the Tomales mountain range. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? It was actually a volcanic range, and it was active at that time. In fact, it was so active that on a daily basis, if you lived in Philadelphia, you could go out and look at the wall, and you'd find new cracks in the city wall. That's how unstable that region was. It was so unstable that in 17 AD, Philadelphia was leveled, along with many other cities in the region, by a major earthquake. 
Emperor Tiberius was sympathetic to the region in, in, for many reasons, one of which its fertile ground produced great soil, great grapes, great wine, and was also the main thoroughfare from the east to the west. And so he helped rebuild Philadelphia. And then he gave Philadelphia the title of Neo-Koros, which means, as you know, because you remember this from Smyrna, it means temple warden of the imperial cult. And so like Smyrna and like Pergamum, they became the official seat in that area to make sure that all of its citizens worshipped the emperor. In other words, it was the place where practicing and enforcing emperor worship was required. So the church in Philadelphia found itself in the same type of physical persecution, economic persecution, social persecution, that many of the other churches that we've looked at in Asia Minor were suffering from as well because they remained faithful to Christ and would not bow down to the emperor. But even amidst all their persecution and suffering and certainly death for their fidelity to Jesus, believers in Philadelphia, according to Christ, they remained faithful in part because they knew the door of salvation had been opened to them. Look at verse 7, the latter part. Jesus again is speaking and he's identifying himself. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. You see, that sounds a little, um, a little poetic maybe, a little difficult to understand. It's not. So the title, the Holy One and the True One, we're going to see that again. John uses that same title in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, to identify God the Father. And so Jesus is reminding the church in Philadelphia, oh, by the way, I am in fact the Son of Man. I am the Savior, and I'm also truly, fully God. So he reminds them of who he is. But then he says something that sets the tone for the rest of the letter, and he actually brings it back to completion in the latter verses. He, he identifies himself as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now the key of David was a, uh, a fancy way of saying that he was in fact the Davidic Messiah, that he was the heir of David that God had promised would come and redeem God's people. He is the Savior King. Sent by God, a thousand years prior, he had made that promise to David that from David's bloodline, an heir would be seated upon the throne, an eternal throne that what? Would never, ever end. That he would be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that this Davidic Messiah would not only rule over the heavens and the earth, but he would be vested with the power to do what? Determine who comes in and who stays out. So Jesus says, I am that Davidic king. I am the one the Jews have been looking for for centuries. I am the one who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now the great hope of every Jew for centuries and even today was that one day they'd be welcomed into the joy and the rest and the prosperity of this future Davidic kingdom, this promised kingdom that God had made to his people. In fact, God said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Speaking to King David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, speaking of course of the church, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever and ever. This was the promise God made to David. This is the promise being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
And so here Jesus not only claims to be David's heir, the one that God had raised up, but he says, I have full authority to determine who is a member of my kingdom. Who comes in and who does not get in, Jesus says, is given to me. And that was really, really good news for the church in Philadelphia. Look at verse 8. Jesus speaking to the church, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. In other words, the church in Philadelphia was not like Ephesus. Ephesus had a lot of good works, but they had no love for God. Not so in Philadelphia. Jesus says, I know your works. I know your service. I know your sacrifice. It's all good. Not only is it good on the outside, but it's good on the inside because you serve out of your love for me. And so this is a fantastic accommodation that's given to the church in Philadelphia by our Lord. Jesus is saying that you have guaranteed access into my kingdom because you have remained faithful. Regardless of how the Jews in the city are treating you, regardless of you're being forced to bow down and, and worship this at the imperial cult, Jesus is saying, I am your God and you have access through me into my kingdom. In other words, he's saying that the door of life comes through me only. You all know this in, in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life and what? No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the access point. And that meant for them, my beloved, that that door that had been opened that no one could shut. Jesus is saying not the Jews in the city, not the, those who were enforcing the imperial court, not Satan himself, is able to shut that door that I've opened up for you. Now the city of Philadelphia, it sat, as I said, on this major thoroughfare from the east to the west. In fact, it was considered by the Roman Empire as the city, the gatekeeper. They had the key of access. So if you wanted to travel east to west for any reason, um, Philadelphia was that, that place that you went through. And as the keeper of the key to the east... Philadelphia saw themselves as a city with honor and stature in the Roman Empire. So Jesus comes along and he says, I got keys too, but it's not east to west because I have the keys of David and I control access out of darkness and death and into eternal life. So they would have heard this and this would have resonated with those who lived in Philadelphia because they understood the concept of gatekeeping and doors and keys. And Jesus says, I have the ultimate key because I have the ultimate access to my Father's kingdom. And Jesus is able to make such a radical claim because as we know, it was through his own death on the cross and resurrection from the dead that the door to heaven, which was shut as a result of our sins, was opened again to God through faith. In fact, the prophet Isaiah said centuries before, Isaiah 26, this is the great accolade of those coming into the kingdom Isaiah said, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace, that speaking of God to his people, those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. So the church in Philadelphia had remained faithful and therefore the door to the kingdom, the door to eternal life had been opened to them. And nothing on the outside, now listen very carefully, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if your faith is in him this morning, that door has been opened to you too. And Jesus is making it very clear here that no one on the outside, no circumstance in life, 
no hardship, no failed marriage, no wayward child, no job loss, no sickness, not even death has the power to close that door. If Jesus has opened it to you through faith, then it remains open to you this very hour. And this is great news, is it not? When we feel overwhelmed and powerless in our current situations. I mean, what a great meditation when you're in the throes of despair and life seems to be against you, coming at you from every side, and you're considering turning away from the faith or maybe holding on to faith in Jesus but grabbing on to an idol too, something to satisfy, something to give you a a pick-me-up in the midst of your despair. Jesus says, don't do that. You must remember that even when you feel powerless, this door is open to you if you remain faithful to me. What a great encouragement no matter how difficult things get on this side of heaven, that door to eternal life cannot be shut to the faithful. It cannot be shut. But the question you have when you hear this, at least I did as I was working through this, is what guarantee do the believers in Philadelphia have? Or what guarantee do we have today that the circumstances in life, that the persecution we might experience for claiming Christ does not overcome our faith? I mean, how do we know that we won't be stripped of our trust in God because things will get just too hard for us or our circumstances won't usurp our belief and we will turn away from Christ and we will turn to an idol? How do we know? What hope do we have of being kept by God? Point number two, I pray you're still with me. Look at the latter part of verse eight. Point number two, kept by God. So we're received by God, that door is open, and we're kept by God. Verse eight, latter part. Jesus said, I know you have but little power, And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. It's such a simple and yet glorious commendation for the church in Philadelphia. He says, you're a little tiny church, very much like ours. He says, you're in the midst of the throes of persecution by the, the, the Jews in your city, certainly by those who are defending the imperial cult. You're getting it from all sides, and yet you remain faithful. You don't have the power to change your circumstances. You can't stop the persecution coming against you and yet you've kept my word and you have not denied my name when being asked to recant your faith. And Jesus' heart soars over them. They refuse to deny Jesus' name when pressured to do so. And so Jesus says, listen, you have little power, but Jesus said, I have all power and therefore I'm going to exercise my power as your savior and king to strengthen and encourage you. And this is where we get that great hope in the midst of our seemingly powerless times. Jesus assured them that he would exercise his power on their behalf, and he promises to do it in two separate ways. The first way, he said, I'm going to promise that your enemies, those who are coming against you now, they're not going to be victorious. Not only are they not going to be victorious, one day they're going to bow down to you. And then secondly, he says, when things get really, really hard, I'm gonna keep you faithful. These are the two promises, the two blessings that God makes to his church. So the first thing he reveals is that their enemies, those called from the synagogue of Satan, would one day be subject to them. Look at verse nine. Jesus said, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So very similar to the situation of the church in Smyrna, the the Jews in Philadelphia 
of the synagogue in Philadelphia, they were, they were actively going to the Roman authorities and they were pointing out people by name. They were saying, that's a Christian, that's a Christian, arrest that household, take them in. And they were handing them over to the Roman authorities. Not only that, they were teaching the Roman authorities to make sure they understood that Christians were not Jews. You see, Jews at that time, they, under, they, they had special privilege from Rome not to be forced to worship the emperor. So they were exempt from the imperial cult. And so they wanted to make sure that their, the Roman officials knew that Christians did not have that privilege. So they taught them. They pointed out the Christians. And so Jesus says, listen, this is not a synagogue of mine. This is a synagogue of Satan. These are Jews by birth, but they rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And because they rejected Jesus Christ, they also rejected his people and came after his people in that city. The consequence of their rejection, look at the latter part of verse 9 again. Jesus says, Behold, I, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now this, my beloved, from the Old Testament perspective, this is such an extraordinary statement by Christ. You see, one of the great promises in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant is that the Gentiles would come and bow down before the Jews. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14, listen. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come to you, Israel, and be yours. They shall follow you, they shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you. Now this prophecy is being fulfilled right here in Philadelphia, but not like the Jews in Philadelphia expected it to be fulfilled. You see, the true people of God, now listen with all your might, the true people of God, the true Israel, whether Old Covenant or New Covenant, have always been comprised of those who have been saved by grace through faith in the Messiah. From the very beginning until the very end, God's people, Old and New Covenant, will be made up of those who are saved by grace through faith in the Savior, in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ, then made up of both Jews and Gentiles, was comprised only of those who believed through faith. And that was the distinguishing factor. True children of Abraham. The father of who? Abraham was identified in the Old Testament as the father of the faithful. Not bloodline, Isaac, Jacob, but faith. In fact, that's what Paul wrote, I do believe, in Galatians chapter 3. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then he says in verse 9 of Galatians 3, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so Jesus tells the believers in Philadelphia not to worry about this synagogue of Satan, the children of Abraham by blood, but not children of Abraham by faith. He says, don't worry about them. They have forsaken the promise. They have forsaken the blessing of having the nations come and bow down before them. They've forsaken it, Jesus is saying, and they become enemies of me. They become em enemies of God. And therefore, they will one day, this is amazing, he says, they're not only going to bow down before God, they're going to bow down before you. The, the, the church in Philadelphia, their enemies, the synagogue of Satan, Jesus is saying, one day, my beloved, they're going to come and they're going to submit to you. Do not be afraid. And then he says, and this is probably the most extraordinary part of this verse, he said, they're going to come to learn that I have loved you. 
Right? The Jew assumed that God loved them because they were of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, not so fast. They're going to come to realize that I love all those who what? All those who believe. Jew or Gentile. I love the true children of Abraham, those who have come to me by faith. And so he encourages them as their enemies come against them by saying, one day those enemies will submit to you. It's the same for you, my beloved. Whatever enemy you have in life because you are a Christian, you should pray for their soul. You should be sharing the gospel with them because their enmity towards you will not last. One day they will die, one day you will die, and you'll come before God. And as you're seated upon the throne with Christ, they will bow down to you. That enemy of yours now will not last But Jesus says something else here, another word of encouragement to keep them steadfast. He said, stay the course of faith, especially when things get difficult. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, so they've they've remained faithful in the midst of persecution, he said, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So because the believers in Philadelphia kept God's word, Because they remained faithful in the midst of suffering, they kept God's word. They kept Jesus' name. Jesus says, I'm going to what? I'm going to keep you. You kept my word. You kept my name. I'm going to keep you when things get really, really hard. And they must have been thinking, things are really hard now, Lord. It's going to get worse, and it was going to get worse. But he told them not to worry because he would ensure they remained faithful. He said, in the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world, Now, I want you to listen very closely. The book of Revelation makes it clear that persecution and suffering would permeate the last days. And we looked at this when we looked at chapter one. The last day started when Christ came, and the last days will end when Christ comes again in glory. So we're in that time of persecution and suffering. You say, oh, I know that all too well, Pastor. But we also see in the New Testament, and certainly in the book of Revelation, that there will be last days of the last days. What does that mean? That means that suffering and persecution will increase as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ. And it will increase because God will start to bring judgment upon the whole world. These judgments we're going to see played out in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls as we we get to that part of the book. And these judgments, listen closely, will be specifically against those who dwell upon the earth. Now in the Greek it literally says earth dwellers. You say, well, what's the big deal on that? It's used here in Revelation chapter 3, and it's used 10 more times in the book of Revelation, and every single time that term earth dweller is used, it's referring to non-believers. It's referring to the unsaved. Okay? In other words, Jesus is promising to his people when the hour of trial comes, when God brings judgment upon those who refuse to repent and believe, those who refuse to be saved, Jesus promises to keep his church from forsaking the faith. He says, I will keep you, and that that literally means I will guard you, I will protect you from the hour of trial by by doing what? By keeping you faithful. So you're not going to turn away when things get really hard, when the judgment of God comes upon the earth. Now our friends in the dispensational camp, they believe this verse refers to what is known as the the pre-tribulation rapture. 
And that teaching is a, a simple teaching. It's the belief that prior to God judging the world, God's going to take his entire church and he's going to remove the church out of the world before he brings judgment upon the earth. Um, the problem with that is that's not what it says here. It certainly does not say that here in the Greek. In the Greek, the language is very clear that he's going to keep or preserve his church in the midst of the suffering. He's not going to take the church out. He's going to make sure the church remains steadfast to the faith. In fact, the exact same phrase is used, and you probably already know this, when Jesus is praying to the Father in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 15. He said to his disciples this, Jesus prayed, I do not ask, Father, that you take them, the disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them, same phrase, same terms, you keep them, what, from the evil one. In other words, Jesus' promise here to keep all true believers from what? From committing apostasy. It's not taking them out of the world. It's making sure they remain faithful in the world when judgment comes. The best Old Testament parallel, I think, for this would be God's bringing the plague upon Egypt. Right When God brought the ten plagues upon Egypt, he didn't take his people out of Egypt first. He brought the plagues but kept them what? He kept them safe. He kept them protected. He kept them faithful in Egypt. Well, the same storyline is playing out here and will play out as Christ's return becomes imminent. Um, So the Savior King promised those in Philadelphia. He said, I promise you victory and I promise you protection. He already said the open door is there for you and it will not be shut, but I'm also going to promise you victory from your enemies. One day they're going to bow down to you and I promise to protect you. When things get really hard, when God judges the evildoers of this world, I promise to protect you and keep you faithful all the way what? All the way to the end, all the way into the eternal kingdom. Oh, my beloved, you talk about power. You talk about power when you feel powerless. Jesus says, you don't have to worry. I guarantee that any enemy that comes against you, you remain faithful, one day they will bow down to you. Any enemy of any kind that attempts to strip you of your faith, not only will he fight against, but one day will come and bow a knee to you. That's anyone in your life, my beloved. That unbelieving spouse who discourages you from serving the church because it takes up too much time. It might be that colleague who makes fun of you for your worship, for you spending Sundays worshiping God instead of watching football. It may be your friends who you've known a long time, maybe before you knew Christ, who continue to tempt you to sin, saying, come on, it's no big deal, it's only one night. It may be, it may be the state. It may be this state that violates your First Amendment right to freedom of religion. Maybe. Jesus says, listen, I will be victorious over each one. Stay the course. Remain faithful. One day, those enemies in your life will bow down to me and to you. And he also guarantees that the trials of this life When they get hard and the judgment that God brings before Jesus returns, when it gets really hard and you're tempted in those moments to turn to that idol, to turn to that that chocolate cake or that TV series or whatever entertainment it is that you embrace in order to get out of difficult times, Jesus tells you don't turn to the idol, stay the course. When that heartache makes its way into your life, when sickness is your lot, when people you love around you are dying, When the Western world collapses to the progressive agenda, as it most certainly will, 
Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not fear. He says, I will carry you through. And I love that thought. He will. He will make sure you remain faithful all the way into the eternal kingdom. He is the good shepherd, is he not? And it was Jesus who said, I shall lose none of all the Father has given me, but I will what? I will raise them up on the last day. That's his promise to you. If you are in Christ, if you are faithful this morning, Jesus says, no one's gonna snatch you out of my hand. You belong to Christ. Christ is your savior and king. So he says, do not be afraid. He said, all right, that's enough. You've given me the open door to heaven. You said that Christ is gonna fight my enemies and I'm gonna be victorious. You said he's gonna protect me from hard times. I am full. You should be. That's sufficient. I got two more amazing teachings. Are you ready? It's like those Christmas mornings where there are too many presents under the tree and the kid just keeps opening the presents. Don't do that. Savor one, two, and three, but these last two, um, yeah, they're gonna be the ones that, the big box under the tree that you have to wait till the end to open. These are they. The true believer is received by God, is kept by God, even though we feel powerless. But lastly, the true believer is truly loved by God. I mean, deeply and eternally loved by God. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And what, what a beautiful statement for them to hear. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have. That's your faith. That's your perseverance. Hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. Remember, we looked at the crown is the crown of eternal life. It's eternal life with God. Don't let him take that away. Throughout the entire book of Revelation, Jesus keeps reminding his readers, I'm coming soon. My, my coming is imminent. It is upon the world. And that is true, was as true then as it is this very hour. Jesus Christ is coming soon. And therefore, he says to them in love, hold fast your faith. Don't move an inch. Don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right. Stay upon that narrow path of the gospel that leads all the way to my heavenly Father. All the way in. And then he says, I'm gonna tell you why. I'm gonna give you two of the most compelling reasons for you in light of your future glory with God to not deviate from the path of faithfulness. Two blessings that reveal how much God really does love us and how much God really does want us. Two blessings, I would say, two eternal blessings that every man, woman, and child long for most in the depth of our souls. When someone says, what do you really want? If you could get down through all the clutter and all the noise and all the materialism of our culture, if you could get down to it, it would be minimally, these two would be in that top five, no doubt. For all those who conquer, Jesus says, first, look at verse 12, first, I'm going to give you this, the one who conquers, I will make him or her a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it again. You say, being a pillar, that sounds just odd. And it does sound odd. It didn't to them. The essential nature of this is the promise that you're going to come into the presence of God and you're never going to be forced out again. Now, again, so for, for Philadelphia, this would have been a tremendous blessing for them. Because they had so many earthquakes in the city, most did not live in the city proper. Most lived outside the city walls in the countryside. And so that was good. So when the earth shook and the rocks started falling down, they were safe. They weren't going to be hit on the head and die. But it was bad because they didn't have the communal protection 
or the sense of community that you enjoyed inside the city. They were exposed to invaders, they were exposed to thieves and robbers, and wild animals, right? So they're kind of stuck in this no man's land. And so for, for Jesus to say to them, you're going to enter into my father's temple as a pillar, was saying to them, you're going to be free from earthquakes, free from foreign invaders, free from thieves, free from enemies. You are going to be in my father's care forever and ever, never ever to be forced out or re- required to leave again. An overwhelming blessing for the, the Philadelphian ear to hear. Jesus was essentially saying this, you're going to be permanent fixtures in my father's home. Permanent fixtures in my father's home. Now listen, not, remember, it's the book of Revelation. It's apocalyptic genre. It's not a literal, physical temple that's going to you know, be miles high and hundreds of miles wide. Jesus is saying here, you're going to be a pillar in my Father's temple, which means you're going to be in my Father's presence permanently. He said, well, how do you know that? Well, he tells us at the end of the book, Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, John says this, I saw what? No temple in the city. I saw no temple in the eternal city. No physical temple. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You say, well, that's much better That's much better than a physical temple. The temple language here is symbolic for the very presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so for you to be a pillar in the temple in the eternal city is the same as him saying, you are going to be in the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever. Now, if you don't think that's better, then either... You have a warped understanding of what a physical temple looks like because I don't want to be a pillar in any temple. Or you've devalued the magnificence of being in the presence of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, literally in their presence, enjoying them, worshiping them, and serving them for all eternity. And the great thing about this is this this permanent residency in the presence of God, never to be cast out again, is the permanent reversal of Genesis chapter 3. Do you know that? It's the permanent fix. See, Genesis chapter 3 came along. Man sinned against God, and man was what? Man was cast out of the presence of God, sojourning as foreigners in foreign lands, even to this hour. But Jesus says, not forever. One day I'm going to bring you back in. You're going to be a pillar in my Father's temple. You're going to be in his presence, never to be cast out again. It's such an amazing thought that our presence in the presence of God will be where we dwell forever and ever. We know that when Jesus was on the cross, when he took his last breath, what, one of the things, the extraordinary things that happened in the temple in Jerusalem at the time, do you remember? The, court, the curtain that separated the holiest of holies where God was, would come and dwell with his people, separated God from man. The, tur- the curtain was torn from top to bottom, torn in two, full access. Heck, we just had a chance to sing it. Full access now. Sinful man into the presence of God by grace through faith in the Savior. Accomplished by Jesus on the cross, opening that door to salvation for all who what? For all who conquer. Jesus says, never again. There'll be no more curtains. There'll be no more walls. 
There'll be no more cherubim with their swords flashing back and forth, keeping you from the presence of my Father. By grace through faith, the door is open. You're brought in. You stay faithful. You conquer. And that's what the conquering means. In all seven letters, the conquering means to remain faithful all the way until your last breath, until you make it in. And Jesus says, never again will you be cast out. Oh, my beloved, that, that's enough. That is so glorious. In other words, he's saying there's no sequel to the creation, fall, redemption story. <laughs> That's a good thing. You know, I mean, I know we love good sequels. There's no sequel to the story. This story ends in the consummation and glorification of Jesus Christ and you being with God forever. One story, not two. Ever since mankind was cast out of the presence of God, we have felt homeless because, in fact, we are. Right, this is not your dwelling place. Even in the best moments, my beloved, when you have enjoyed the greatest community and the greatest family and the greatest love, there's something deep down that says, it's, this is not it. It's not complete. And that's right, because you're not yet in the presence of God, the lover of your soul. There's something that we are not able to settle Right? We can't find that place of true rest and true lasting love on this side. You know what I'm talking I'm talking about that permanent, permanent place that every heart longs for. Even the most autonomous heart who says, I don't need anybody. Even deep down, they need this place. This place where you are known through and through. This place where you accepted. This place where you are loved. And that never ends. Every one of us wants that. Every one of us longs for that because we're on this side of Eden. We get glimpses here on earth at times, and they're beautiful glimpses, and I pray that you enjoy them, you know, that, that, that taste of, of, of home with family. Even in our church family, that sense on Friday night, we had such a glorious evening thanking God and celebrating 70 years here, and there was just that sense of, this is a family, this is a good family. We love one another. Maybe even that, that tight-knit group of friends that you've had before that are so close, you think, well, this will never end. This will never end. At least we think that when we're young, right? Sitting around Grandma's table at Thanksgiving, enjoying that great love and laughter of family and friends. Um, for many of us, for me, that's just a memory now. Most of the people that I love that were older are, are gone now. And a lot of the friends that I used to have I don't, I don't see them anymore. Um, those high school and college friends that you were so close to that you thought, we'll be together forever. And now it's what? It's an occasional text and a Christmas card, right? I mean, that's pretty much it. We were created to live in the presence of God forever, never to experience this sense of homelessness. And yet we do because we're not in his immediate presence right now. Sin entered, and so we find ourselves longing and searching for home. That might be, my beloved, as I thought about this particular point of the sermon, that might be why we move so much. I mean, we're always moving around from place to place to place. And I think, in part, that's because we think, well, this place will be our, we used to even use the term today, this will be my what? My forever home. And then two and a half years later, we, go, we move again to our next forever home. We will not be satisfied because your forever home is with God. 
And so Jesus comes along here and he says, listen, for those who conquer, for those who remain faithful all the way to the end, you will enjoy the presence of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as a pillar in the temple forever and ever. In other words, your homeless heart that is so restless now, so dissatisfied now, Jesus says one day it will be filled. It will be complete You won't ever long for again like that sojourner in a foreign land, that sense of community. He says, you're gonna have it. It's gonna be perfect. You're going to love it and enjoy it forever and ever. Real eternal community in the presence of God, in the presence of the saints, and in the presence of the angels. Never again to be separated. Never again. Your real forever home with God. You say, all right, now, you can't, there cannot be another present under the tree. There's one more and I'll close. I told you, this is just, Jesus is just pouring out blessings upon this church. They remained faithful. They are being persecuted. They felt powerless. And he says, listen to all the blessings. Last one for you. He promises those who remain faithful a new name. Look at the latter part of verse 12. Jesus says, I'll, I'll write on him, the one who conquers, I'll write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, and the new, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. So in addition to having a forever home, you're going to get some new names, some new extraordinary names. Now, most of you know that names back then, uh, they weren't just, you know, we sit down and we open these books and we come up with names for our kids. Names then, they, they signified someone's identity or described their character or their station in life. And again, this would have been very um, personal for those who lived in Philadelphia. Remember, when the earthquake destroyed the city in 17 AD, Emperor Tiberius rebuilt the city, and he not only made them temple wardens of the imperial court, court, he gave them a new name. Neo-Caesarea was the new name of Philadelphia. Neo-Caesarea, which means the new city of Caesar. And oh, were they proud of their name. They told people, you know where we live? We live in Neo-Caesarea. That's right, honor and pride they experienced here. And so Jesus comes along and he says, I'm going to give you a new name, church. Not Neo-Caesarea, not the new Caesar. I'm going to give you a new name. My father's name, my name, and the city name attached directly to you. And so Jesus identifies no less than, this is amazing, three eternal names, three defining characteristics. Every single Christian will enjoy if you make it to the end. If you get all the way in, if you conquer by remaining faithful. The first one is the name of the Father. He says it will be written upon you. Now remember, it's symbolic. You're not gonna have tattooed on your body, Yahweh, or God the Father. It is going to be defining the relationship that now you belong to God the Father. That you are a son or daughter of the Father. And that you are what? You are holy as God the Father is holy. You are pure as he is pure. This is reminiscent of Exodus chapter 28 on on Aaron's uh, headdress. Aaron was the high priest in Exodus, if you remember. And on his headdress, he had a gold plate. And on that gold plate, it said, Holy to the Lord. The high priest, set apart by God, belong to God, holy unto the Lord. That's the same for you if you remain faithful to the end. You get that too. But then Jesus says, I'm, you're going to have written upon you an eternal citizenship. Verse 12 again, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. 
For all those who conquer, no longer will you be a sojourner in a foreign land. No longer not fitting in. Aren't you tired of just not fitting in? Certainly in this place, when you claim Christ, you say you're an evangelical Christian, you say that you're a Southern Baptist and people's eyes go up because you don't fit in here. You really don't fit in here. Jesus says, you'll never feel like that again. You will be at home. You will feel at home as a citizen in my kingdom, in the city of God, in the new Jerusalem. You will be, Jesus is saying, you'll be a full-fledged, card-carrying member of my biblical community. And you're going to love that card. So he says, one, you're, you're going to be holy unto the Lord. My Father's name will be upon you. Two, you'll be a citizen of the celestial city forever and ever. And then he ends it with his own name. He says, I'm going to write my name, my new name on you. And you say, well, how's that different from God the Father? Remember, this is the name above all names. This is the name that was loved most by God the Father, his beloved Son, And so Jesus is saying, not only are you going to be my my friend, this is the king talking, not only are you going to be one of my closest friends, not only will you be a son or daughter in my father's kingdom, but you're going to be loved by God the Father as the Father loves me because my name is now on you. John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, listen to this, and my father will what? My father will love him And we, Father and Son, will come to him and make our home with him. We will dwell with him in that temple. So extraordinary. This is your forever identity for those who remain faithful. Perfectly holy, infinitely loved, forever citizen of the eternal city of God. You want to talk about power, my beloved. When you are feeling powerless, I would encourage you to go back and read the letter written to the church in Philadelphia. Do you see the power when you find yourself powerless? Do you see what Christ is saying here? When you're at your wit's end and you're tempted to turn to that idol, Jesus reminds you, the door to heaven has been opened to you and it remains open as long as you remain steadfast. Do not turn to that idol. He reminds you of that. There's power in that remembrance. When you feel surrounded by your enemies and you're just going to go under, you can't keep your head above water anymore, Jesus reminds you, regardless of what your life ends like here on earth, he reminds you of your true end. Your true end is victory with him on the throne. And your enemies now, if they don't repent and believe, they will one day bow down before you. He says you have victory regardless of how hard things are right now. For those of you overwhelmed by your future, Maybe right now you're dreading next week or next month or next year. For those of you who who will hear about the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, and you're thinking, wow, I want to die before the judgment comes. Jesus says to you, in fact, he whispers to you in love, have no fear, my beloved. He says, I am with you. I will watch out for you. I will care for you. I will ensure you remain faithful all the way to the end. He reminds you of that, and there's power in that. When you're feeling homeless, lonely, no real sense of community in your marriage or your family or your church or the broader community, when you truly feel like that foreigner, that stranger in a foreign land, Jesus says, cast your vision to the eternal kingdom. Look to the dwelling place of my Father. That is your permanent residency. 
where you will be truly forever at home. And lastly, when you find yourself fighting to make a name for yourself because you're not satisfied with the new name you have in Christ, you're fighting to be that top mom or perfect dad, that obedient son, that loving daughter, that model Christian, that employee exemplar, because deep down you know, deep down you know that your sin has marred you so through and through that your name apart from Jesus Christ, is not holy, it is not lovable, and it is not worthy of the city of God. You know that. You know that your name apart from Jesus is unholy, that you are an enemy of God, and that your citizen is that of a kingdom of darkness and death. When you get like that, Jesus reminds you that that is the old you. That's the old self before you were made alive by the Holy Spirit before you were born again by God, before the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins was applied to you and you received his perfect righteousness, not because of anything you did, but because he is holy. He reminds you of your new self and your new standing and your new righteousness in him. My beloved, far from powerless, with these promises in hand, I believe we become the most powerful people on the planet if these promises are true, that we can live in accordance with our new name and our new standing starting right now as the holy, perfectly loved citizens of Christ's kingdom that you are. That means putting sin to death because you have been made holy by the blood of Christ. It means loving and serving and sacrificing for others now because you are perfectly loved by Christ. It means proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and adding to this kingdom which is yours in Christ. How great to populate God's kingdom with more saints that love the Lord. Amen? My beloved, you may be powerless to change your circumstances, but Jesus Christ promises to exercise his power on your behalf. So stay the course, remain faithful, persevere to the end, have the long view ever before you. Have the long view before you, and you will be glad that you did. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need to seek forgiveness for our short-sightedness. How quickly in the midst of difficult circumstances, when we truly feel and maybe are powerless to change them, do we turn to an idol something to satisfy temporarily, something to give us hope when there is no hope in that idol. I pray you would forgive us for that, Father, and instead encourage us this morning with this letter written to the church in Philadelphia. Have us hear these extraordinary promises that the door of eternal life has been opened and remains open to us by faith. Have us see clearly, Father, that you are victorious over all our enemies and you will protect us when your judgment comes upon this earth. Help us to see, even right now, Father, that incredible dwelling place, that eternal temple, which is your presence. Have us to long for that and work for that. And have us, Father, embrace our new names, that we might be that holy people, that we might be that people eternally loved because of Christ, that we might be a people, Father, who have been welcomed into your kingdom and will never be asked to leave again. Lord, I pray these promises 
these glorious eternal truths would rest upon the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters and so encourage them this day that they would be utterly transformed by the hope they have in Christ. Do that great work here in us, Father, I pray, that we might live lives in accordance with our new standing in Christ. In his name, amen.